HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch, grass-fed beef raised on California's central coast. Now available online through Larder Meat Company. Learn more at hearstranch.com. This week on Meat and 3, we're spotlighting the people, dishes, and ingredients decolonizing food. We're looking at our Thanksgiving plates and beyond to explore efforts to reclaim food sovereignty in Native American culture, the African diaspora, and Puerto Rico. I believe that oyster dressing is like the consummate side dish for an amazing fried turkey. What we're doing there is just working the land and we're laughing and we're creating a space for joy. And it's in that that healing occurs for us. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief. With your hosts, me, Zari Tangora, and Bobby Comforto, or Barbara Comforto, or as I like to call her mom. Um, she is my co-host, and I am once again doing this intro alone as we are separated by COVID and just seems easier for me to do these alone, but you guys, she's here in spirit. That is for sure. She says, hello. Um, how is everyone? How was Thanksgiving? Uh, a strange year. And as we discussed on last week's show, uh, Thanksgiving can often be a strange year every year. Um, whether you have had a profound grief experience or not, it can bring up a lot of feelings. There can be all kinds of things going on. So, uh, I do really hope that whatever you ended up doing, whether it was nothing or, you know, something with a couple friends and family, that you had little moments of joy. Um, I did. I had a lot of little moments of joy and some big moments of joy. And uh, it ended up being a beautiful couple of days um, for me. And I, and I hope it was for you. And if it wasn't, then that's okay, too. Um, so today... This week, we have an incredible guest. Um, I keep saying beautiful writer every time I talk about uh, Alicia Kennedy, our guest this week. But I mean, there's so many words to describe her and her writing and her voice. But truly, like when I read her work, it just is so beautiful and so kind of reaching to the heart of everything that I wish I could say as well, you know what I mean? That I'm, that I'm feeling, um, she really has just such a way with her craft and we were really, really honored to have her on the show. Um, 
Alicia is a food and beverage writer, mainly an essayist and columnist, um, living and working in San Juan, Puerto Rico. As we come to find out, Alicia uh, shares a home location of Long Island with Bobby and I, so that was definitely kind of fun to bond over. Um, And she comes on the show today to talk about the loss of her brother, Brian, and the impact that had on her and her relationship with with food. And just really, we talked a lot about just the experience of loss, um, as we often do on the show. Although those of you who listen to the show regularly know that, you know, each episode is different. And sometimes we talk about loss of business. Sometimes we talk about ideas around loss. And we talk very much on this episode about the actual loss and um, her feelings that were really tied to losing her brother, Brian. And um, it's a hard thing to do. And it's a vulnerable thing to do. And it's um, extremely kind and generous to talk about things that are painful and uh, so candidly. And I really just want to extend an extra thank you to Alicia for really digging in there deep and, and talking about this stuff because I know it really does help so many of you out there and help me too in thinking about, you know, my own losses that I've suffered. Um, I just thank you, Alicia, for your beautiful words and for your presence. And it was such a delight to speak with you. You're a wonderful human and it was our distinct pleasure to have you on the show. So I hope that you guys all enjoy our chat with Alicia Kennedy and uh, we have notes in the show bio at how you can follow her and all the things she does, her incredible newsletter and how you can check out her work. So please enjoy our conversation with Alicia and I hope that everyone's hanging in there and yeah, happy December, everyone. Um, We love you and please always feel free to reach out uh, processing at heritageradionetwork.org. We would love to have you as a guest. If you would like to do that, send us an email and we can chat. Um, And you can follow us at processing podcast on Instagram um, listener letters, feedback, anything. And if you do have a moment to rate, review, and subscribe, it just helps make the show more visible. So we'd appreciate that. And if you can't do that, that's fine too. Thanks for listening. Um, okay. That's it for me. Ta-ta. Enjoy our conversation with Alicia. Thank you. Awesome. We are here with Alicia Kennedy. Hi, Alicia. What's going on? Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's so nice to meet you. It's funny, like, you know, we're pre-pandemic, so used to having everyone come into the studio, but it's it's a new and interesting way of getting to meet people. But, you know, it's at the same time, everyone kind of feels like familiar, even though we haven't necessarily met before. You don't, you don't feel like a stranger. And mostly because we were just <laughs> talking right before we started recording that we're all we're all Long Islanders. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're from Patchogue, you mentioned, right? Yeah, I'm from Patchogue. I went to high school in Huntington at St. Anthony's. And then I lived in Huntington for a while as an adult. That's where I, I had a bakery. Um, oh, Not really? a physical one, but I I cooked um, at a commercial kit, a commissary kitchen. And then I, I sold at the farmer's market there. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that's so amazing. Cool. So Bobby yeah. lives in Huntington. And I, and I had a and I had a business with Zara's dad called Love and Oven, which was a bakery in Huntington and oh, catering that's so business funny. for many many years. And I also, believe it or not, lived grew up right across the street from St. Anthony's, the house directly across the wow. street. Wow, <laughs> that's yeah. so wild. 
wild. That's mm-hmm. so interesting. Cool. Yeah. Bobby and my dad who passed away and they were divorced for a long time before he died, but they owned a business called the love and oven. And it was right next to, do you know where the Valencia tavern is down in kind of like hill, uh, hell site? That sounds familiar for sure. But I, I li- when I lived in Huntington, I lived in the village. So I like okay, never got left. <laughs> got it. Huntington's an interesting yeah. place. I mean, you know, Long Island does, we've already knew if you were from Long Island, but definitely found out in this last election cycle is very red. It's a, and it's a pretty strange place, but there's also these pockets of kind of cool towns. And I think that Huntington is one of them, you know, definitely, definitely one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Huntington's (laughs) cool. I just, uh, again, on the Huntington food tip, I need to mention if you were in the village, I want to know your opinion on uh, little Vincent's pizza. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was, uh, like a strict vegan the oh, most right. of the time I lived there. So I never ate Little Vincent's. Uh-huh. I might have eaten it when I was a teenager, but it I don't I don't remember it very well. I right. in Puntington Village European Republic was my go to place. Oh, the French fry place. Amazing. Yes, the French fry place. <laughs> We're big on the Mediterranean snack bar too. Like I the- love that place. I used to get falafel there all the time. Oh my god. Their falafel are good because they make those like big falafel patties, very which big. are yeah. where you don't see that often. So we are interconnected already. We are That's great. so cool. <laughs> Um, awesome. So Alicia, you are a freelance writer and you've written for amazing publications like Nylon, The Village Voice, and you have a really popular weekly newsletter and also a podcast, which I I think the last new episodes were last year, but it's an awesome podcast called Meatless, which you can still definitely listen to on like iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. Um, yeah. So am I, I'm summarizing your career (laughs) just a little bit, but you, you are really out there and you do so much, you know, kind of media stuff and you're an amazingly gifted, beautiful writer. Um, yeah. What are you kind of working on and cooking right now? You're in Puerto Rico now. You said you've been there for about a year. What do you, what have you been cooking up? Nothing that exciting. I don't think I, (laughs) (laughs) um, so because of the pandemic, we, my, you know, options are limited, obviously, as everyone's are, but we have a farmer's market that's local. So we go there every week and I, I basically do all the stuff I would usually cook, but with local ingredients. So like recently I made a pumpkin cake, um, spiced with a really nice go in masala from the Floyd Cardo's line from Burlap and Barrel, which is a wonderful masala line. Um, but and I put carambola, which is like star fruit on it. Um, and so like in if I was in New York, maybe I would have used like, I don't know, whatever citrus was in was available that for that. Or, you know, I have apio, which is the local sort of a celery root. So I might roast that and, you know, serve it with um, you know, a salad from local arugula and, you know, make pasta with sauce from tomatoes. You know, I don't, I don't think I've, I've done a lot of actual Puerto Rican food. I've just do all of my food with Puerto Rican ingredients. Yeah, I love that. And so how, how did you come to live down in Puerto Rico? Well, I, my grandmother was from here, so I had been here a lot over the last like decade of my adulthood. And then I started to write about the foodways and how colonialism affects the foodways here Mm. and in 2015. And I just kept coming back and doing reporting and doing more reporting and more stories. And then last year I met, uh, who is now my fiance. So I moved here for him. It was a... 
weird yeah <laughs> i feel very strange being a person who made a decision for a man but <laughs> that is the story <laughs> well yeah and i mean i guess that's one way to look at it but then also you know you really made a decision for yourself because yeah. like being in love and having like good partnership is such like a, a positive or can be such a positive decision for yourself so maybe yes. you know you could reframe it that way <laughs> i think it's wonderful look like Thank if you. this year has taught us anything um and i think it's taught us a lot of things it's that life changes very quickly and it's very short. And, you know, I, I know that you know that acutely from dealing with a very major loss in your life, which we're going to get into in a little bit. But, um, but I think that making decisions that are big and, and daring is wonderful because this is, this is it. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> this is it. And if you fuck up or it's the wrong decision or something that, you know, whatever, then you make yeah. it, then you, you try again. But make I, another I, one. Right. I salute you. I think it's amazing. <laughs> oh, thank you. Risk taking is great. Um, so anyway, you know, it's funny, like what I'm just curious to know kind of how your life has changed in this current climate and the pandemic. Like, I mean, what is, what, what are some of the biggest differences that have, have been noticeable for you? Well, because I've worked at home for over a decade, the differences for me are mostly about what I do in the evening, especially because we've had a curfew here on the mm -hmm. island for eight months now. And so right now it's 10 p.m. Uh, a few months ago, it was it was earlier there. It, it mm -hmm. went from, I think, 9 p.m. to 7 p.m., then to 10 p.m. So yeah. my it's very strange because my whole life is now ruled by this curfew. And <laughs> um, I never used to watch TV. Now we watch TV every night. Um, yeah. We had to buy a TV because we watch TV so much. Um <laughs> And, you know, and so my life is mostly changed in that, you know, I, I expected when I moved down here to be able to go back to New York much more regularly, you know, and I expected not to be so far away from my family and from my friends that I had for so long. And I expected just in general to keep traveling for my job to write um, in the same way that I used to. Um, I expected to still be, you know, when I felt like it to like go to the cafe or go to the bar to write. And I can't do that. And so my life is mostly changed in that it's so centered around where my home, uh, which it never it hasn't been in my adult life in this way. You know, I'm used to being out and about. And, and so that's my, that's the big difference for me. It's, it's not, it doesn't change my life too much materially, you know, financially or anything like that. It just changes, you know, the, the, the role of the home, I suppose. But I guess that's true for a lot of people, especially totally. people who live and in it's, cities. It's, for sure. I mean, you know, in, and I want to kind of get into your story in a minute, but in what you have told us about your backstory and, and loss, and I mean, I lost my dad in 2018 and um, just went through a really tumultuous time of other kind of wild things happening around then. And since then, I've used my social life, as I kind of always have, but definitely since then, to like manage my own grief. And there is something in being able to just like get out and be out and be like, oh, I want to be in this circumstance. I want to be in this situation right now. I'd like to be walking down. I want to go to this park or I'd like to be sitting at this bar having this drink or, you know, that kind of freedom of choice in handling grief is kind of huge, you know. Um, have you found that to be, like, difficult in that particular way of of the limitations of your social life during the pandemic? 
For sure. And I, I, but I wouldn't say my social life necessarily. I mean, I guess I'm, you know, not, I don't prioritize my social life as much as maybe I should, but I would say that not being able to travel when traveling was something that I relied on to like keep the momentum going in my life, especially after my brother passed, he passed in late 2016. Um, that, you know, I really, I started to travel so much after that. And it was, I don't think it was an escape from it. I think it was a, it was how I processed it in a way. It was, it was how, you know, to get away from the place that I had lived my entire life. You know, I grew up on Long Island. I stayed on Long Island for a little while in my adulthood. And then I moved to Brooklyn. So I never really got away (laughs) from, you know, the surroundings in which I grew up, which was, it was great in some ways. You know, I have great friends that I grew up with, you know, that I've been friends with for 20 something years at this point. And, um, I was, I am super close to my family, but at the same time, I didn't have, I don't know. I didn't really have a wealth of other experiences to draw on. Um, And so, yeah, I I use travel as a way of just, I don't know, putting more things in my brain than than just, you know, the grief and the things that I grew up with. Um, And I think that was really necessary for me. And it was very healing for me, for sure. Yeah. A way to plug into life. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. To plug into what makes life worth living rather than to kind of sit in the place where I'd always been and just dwell. Um, uh, and, you know, and I've, I mean, I've written about it before, but, you know, I'm like, I am a moderately spiritual person. And so I don't, I've never felt like I needed to. I don't know, stay near my brother's grave or stay where he grew up in order to kind of feel close to him. You know, I was able to really in traveling, it was actually interesting to me to find out how many different places I could find my connection to him. Um, Whether it was, you know, I I talk, uh, there's one instance that I talk about a lot, but when I was in Madrid for the first time, I walked into El Prado, the museum, and I was faced with this, like this, these renderings of Lazarus's sisters um, from the Bible. And my, um, I remembered how the priest at my brother's funeral had brought, had compared me and my sister to those sisters. And it was just this really, this moment of, you know, just realizing that I was part of something much, you know, bigger and, and broader and more historical. And, and it did it, it made my grief feel less personal and less, you know, um, overwhelming, I think, to, to realize that I was part of, you know, the world and not just my own little world. Totally. Well, you <laughs> know, it's an important part that we talk about the per- perspective, you know, in, in the beginning, all you can see is the loss. And over time, it's helped so much to have the bigger picture of life. So that's a good description of that with your travel. Absolutely. And it's just striking to me, you know, I read this in in your piece on grief and its metamorphoses. And, um, you know, I, I feel similarly, like, to kind of what you said about, like, going to the grave of, you were talking about your brother, but, you know, I feel like that when my dad was cremated, but I buried him a little bit of his ashes with my grandparents. But I think graves in general, right, were meant to be like, this is where you can go to grieve and feel this person. So here you are, or maybe like, here's one or two objects from them. And and when you hold this object, you'll feel close to them. And I'm not at all saying that visiting a, a site or a grave or having personal objects is in any way, you know, to be dismissed. But I think the reality is, is that you can't confine where you feel those people that you've lost or you love, you know, and it becomes much more ethereal and they are kind of everywhere and you do 
notice these like little things and, and these memories and these trail markers that uh, are attached to your experiences with them that are worldly and they're everywhere. And it goes so far beyond the, you know, the specific site that, you know, society has kind of told us this is where you're meant to grieve. And then outside of that, no. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a material kind of perspective on grieving that I just don't relate to though right. it's fun it's not funny <laughs> we're talking about death <laughs> no death but when I funny. was it can be funny no but when I was a kid because like the other major loss in my life but it's not as major of course and because it's not as it is I mean it's still pretty fresh in my brain and always has been but you know my grandmother died when I was five and I spent most of my childhood with her until she died like she was watching me every day and she cooked for me and she did everything for me we watched cooking shows together and so obviously that's a huge influence on my life but when I was a kid and I went to her grave and we went there on holidays you know I really would feel it and I would cry and that and so I think I expected to feel similarly about my brother's grave and when I went there for the first time I didn't feel anything and I still don't really feel anything it feels very hollow and performative the act of going to the grave and um so yeah it's just it's very weird I think it you know it it represents different things to different people and maybe at different times in their lives too you know I think it's very important to my parents but it's not as important to me yeah right and you know you uh, turned us on to two of your articles one was on grief and its metamorphoses, and the other was the first time I ate an oyster. And in both of those, you really talk about food and dreams as a way of connecting and a yes. way of grieving. Yes. No, dreams, yeah, dreams are so important to me in, in terms of grieving, I think. And I, you know, speaking of my grandmother as well, I had a dream about her probably like maybe 15 years ago or something where she she said something to me about like, let it go. <laughs> and, you know, and so, and that was super important to me. But, and then with my brother in terms of dreams, it's been interesting because um, as I wrote in that piece, I have in the past not been able to, talk to him when I see him in my dreams it's too overwhelming and I am you know I I just can't express myself to him and I either I yell at him or I start crying or something or I grab him and I won't let go but it was interesting to have this dream around his birthday this year what would have been his 30th birthday um where he was barbecuing for some reason where like this is a person who like in life had never had any interest in food really not (laughs) at least not in the same way that Mm. I do of course and then it was kind of like a And then I'm like, when I wake up, I'm saying, oh, it's either my brain decided that he had to be cooking for me to accept him, or he was like, I have to cook to make Alicia pay attention to me. (laughs) So it's it's just, and it, yeah, yeah, and it's funny because as I write about him, I always write about food as well, because I don't, for me, that's my, you know, organizing principle. And then, but for him, it's not. And so it's interesting because it's always this point of either connection or disconnection between us, which is how it was when he was alive and how, how it is apparently expressed too mm. in his death. What was his, uh, your brother, Brian was his name, right? Yes. What was his organizing principle? What was, what were his interests? As Probably music was his biggest interest, but and music is also my biggest interest. But we kind of also diverged there, where he he was like really really heavily into hip hop, and mm. I was not as much. But we there were some some artists that we were able to converge on um, Kid Cudi very specifically Mm -hmm. and uh lupe fiasco and kanye west you know before all of the recent things (laughs) um and so 
And so there were all these points of connection between us on that and, and movies and comedy and, and everything that was funny uh, in life was very much, you know, his thing. And yeah, and, and uh, yeah, it's interesting because, you know, we had so much in common when we were kids, of course, because we were kids. And then as we got older, these these paths diverged. And I always I don't know if I wrote about this or anything, but I expected us to come back together at some point when we were both adults. And then that mm. that is the loss that I feel and that that I write about, that I don't get to know that, that person who... The loss who, of the future. The, exactly. Um, not just the expectations, but the visions of what the future might be and, and the feeling of missed opportunities. Yep. Yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. that's very painful. But you, know, you were talking before about your brother being both, you had times where you felt con- the opposites, you know, connection and disconnection. But in a way, you know, a, a sibling can be a protector and you protect them. Yeah. And they can be a friend and they can be an enemy and you can be competitors and you can be allies. So did you find that with your brother, that your relationship was rich in those dichotomies? Very, very rich in those dichotomies. Um, you know, I, I ex- there, there was a long time where he, I mean, because he's five years younger than me, where he didn't get anyone gifts for holidays or anything, you know, because he was just a kid and like whatever. And he was... Um, Yeah. And so but once he did start to buy presents, I felt like, oh, now he's going to outshine me and and (laughs) I'm going to like lose my status. in the And like Mm. he always wanted to also be a writer. And so I always was like, oh, he's had way more rich experiences than I have in his like, even though he's younger than me, he's like lived so much more than me. So he is going to be the one who's going to have more to say and be the better writer. And, And it's so it is really funny in the end. Um, that uh, to have thought those things when, you know, to lose someone when you thought all those things, when you thought that they were going to be this, you know, good competition for you for the rest of your life. And then you lose that. And it's like, okay, what am I supposed to do now? Um, So, yeah, we always, you know, diverged on a lot of things, but at the same time um, had so much in common. And yeah, I was, I was really looking forward to that part of our lives. Um, and it's funny, you know, now in my, with my sister who she's 15 years younger than me and five years, I mean, 10 years younger than my brother was. Um, and it's the, the times where I see him in her are like, you know, very, um, you know, I don't know, nice, I guess, but the, I don't have the same competition with her. She is not the same like foil for me as a person or as a sibling, because there's such a huge age difference that, you know, we're both, you know, I was her babysitter for a long time. And then, you know, now as she's 20 and I'm 35, you know, we have more in common, I suppose, not necessarily in common, but like, you know, we can see eye to eye on things that we weren't able to before because now she has more adult experiences. And so, but she's never going to be the same thing to me that my brother was because he was so close in age. But at the same time, you know, sometimes I'll answer a FaceTime from her and she'll make the same face at me that he would make. And, and, <laughs> that's, and, that's and, and so, yeah, it's nice to have that continuity mm. in some ways. Um, I haven't lost all the continuity, but I've lost like most of it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You know, we talk about um, in grief continuing bonds. I always like that word, but it's that concept that, you know, obviously when a person passes, it doesn't mean the relationship passes. So how would you describe your relationship with your brother now? How is he a part of your internal world? I feel, you know, pushed and, you know, um, motivated by him. And I feel uh, calmed by 
the presence he has in my life now. I feel that that's what he wants, that that is, um, and yeah, and I don't know how, you know, you know, for me as a, as a person who is, is spiritual, that is how I feel. I feel very much like his presence in my life is calming. And when he was alive, I don't think he was able to be that. And I, and I do think that that is something that, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm happy about, I'm happy that he has been able to, to trans transform his energy, um, in, in another realm, um, in order to be the presence he wasn't able to be, um, on, on this, this realm. <laughs> that, that's very interesting that you say that. And I think that people who haven't experienced really significant grief and loss, like it's hard to, to understand that that concept mom of what you're talking about and Alicia, what you just mentioned about your brother, like the continuing bonds and how that the relationship doesn't really end. It just transforms. And it is very strange to have (laughs) it end in a physical way. Um, But it, it really does continue in the way that like, you know, your lost loved one mm, continues to like push you and motivate you. You know, you had mentioned, you quoted Louise Gluck, Glock, is that correct? The pr- correct You know, pr- I'm not a, I don't know. <laughs> Louise Gluck. It might be. That's how I say well, it in my head. Let's go ahead and say Glock because it looks like <laughs> Glock. Okay, perfect. Um, I'm like, I have a chronic fear of mispronouncing things. So basically everything that I say, I'm concerned it's mispronounced. But anyway, so uh, you had quoted her in, in the one of the essays you wrote and you wrote, writing is a kind of revenge against circumstances too, bad luck, loss, pain. If you make something out of it, then you've no longer been bested by these events. And I think that, you know, a lot of times folks, I know I do it in my, in my work, I'm a writer as well. And uh, in doing this podcast and everything, I, I think that, you know, when you're talking about your lost loved one and, and, and your brother motivating you, it's just an interesting thing. We don't think about how the relationship can really change and transform in that way. Um, and, you know, people talk about like, I'm doing this for my dad, or I'm doing this for my mom or my brother or my sister. But, you know, not that you would ever in a million years want that thing to happen. But what does happen out of a loss is really, really profound and unique. And not to say that everyone has to use the loss of a loved one in the same way, or if you never do anything different or special because of it, that's okay, okay too, too, right? for right. sure. Um, the but, potential. Yeah. How do you feel like, because you are, I mean, truly a beautiful writer. I was like, just so taken with the essays uh, that you sent. And then I went on a deep dive and read basically everything else you've ever written. <laughs> and um you know, how, how do you feel like, I'm curious in, in two ways, uh, in, in terms of your creativity, how has the loss of your brother affected the way you write, if it has at all, and also the way you cook and your relationship with food? Well, I don't think it's changed my relationship to food too much, but I do think that my writing, I think when he died, I became sick of the way I was doing things. Um, or it allowed me to, it allowed that feeling to come to the forefront. You know, I think that I, when I was uh, in 2015, I had quit a job that I'd had for six years. I was a copy editor at New York Magazine um, and I wanted to be a writer and I was so sure it would be better to be a freelance writer than to be a copy editor <laughs> at New York Magazine. Um, and it was something, you know, I was, I felt pushed by a societal pressure. I was about to turn 30 and so I wanted to be doing something, you know, grander with my life. Um, and then 
you know, freelance writing, it's, it was good, but I don't know if I was ready necessarily for what I was trying to do. And I, you know, I did the best I could. I don't know. I'm probably more embarrassed of, of everything I did for the first few years, um, than I should be. Um, but you know, since my brother died, it was kind of a license to do what I want to do um, and to not be afraid to write in the way that I wanted to write and not, you know, because as, I mean, we were talking about this before we started recording you life is short and there is no reason not to be doing things the way you want to be doing them. And so, yeah, I think I just started to follow my own instincts more as a writer. And that's been super fruitful for me, obviously. And, and, you know, I, I am grateful for that, that I, I am less fearful of, um, you know, I, yeah, I think I, I wrote about this maybe in my newsletter this week that, you know, I always just wanted to be a writer. And when I became a writer, I think I started to write in a way that I didn't like, um, because I was focused so much on making money or like with a very specific idea of what food writing is supposed to be. And now that I have kind of stopped doing that I you know have a lot more success not just in terms of like how many people read me or how much money I'm making but in terms of how much uh, better I feel about what I put into the world yeah what you were describing before about um we become more fearless um there's a wonderful quote that I like from Stephen Levine and he said that fearlessness is not the absence of fear it's being able to stand in the face of fear so I guess in the face of loss you know, we become fearless um, because we have to stand in the face of it. And I guess you feel freer. You know, when we're when we are fearless, we're freer. So that's what you were describing in your writing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this is maybe like, I don't know. I don't know if this question is quite linear to our conversation, but it kind of just like popped in my head. And I just kind of want to ask you, you know, you lost your brother when he was 25 years old. That's 26. Yeah. 26 years old. Right. I'm so sorry. Um, but and. nevertheless, extremely young and too young and that's, and tragically young. Had you ever in your life anticipated having such kind of complicated grief? Like, have you, like, it's just such a, it's such a, what most of us would think is an unexpected loss. Like, had you ever even considered something like that happening? You know, I think, yeah, I had, I think because of the way my brother was living his life, um, for the few years before he passed away. And so I, I guess it didn't come out of nowhere, but you know, I never would have said anything about it unless I had had a few drinks and it was late in the night. And I would have been like, this is a fear that I have. Um, because it's so hard to acknowledge. And I mean, it's easy to acknowledge in hindsight, in hindsight, there are 10,000 million things I should have done, you know, but when it's actually happening, you're like, okay, this is going to pass, you know, this bad period is going to pass and everything will be okay. And, you know, you don't really think that anything that tragic is going to befall you. (laughs) No, you don't. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it wasn't unexpected in my deepest, in the deepest recesses of my mind, but and also because my mother, again, in, in a sort of like metaphysical thing, my mother had started seeing white butterflies like a, six months beforehand, which is supposed to be a sign that someone is going to pass. Um, 
And so, you know, you think you hope that it's going to be someone old, <laughs> I mean, which is sounds rude in, in, in retrospect. But, you know, when I when my dad called me to tell me what had happened and actually I was supposed to go to the house that morning and, and pick to pick up a car to go upstate for some press trip or something. But I didn't because I had been doing a I had been on an assignment for the Village Voice the night before and I got home really late and I just was like, you know what, I'm going to just figure something out. I'll just take the train upstate or something. And, you know, I was supposed to go there that morning. And then I got the call in the afternoon and I was just obviously in total shock. And, you know, you feel like the floor has gone away. Um, And I. I, when my dad, I said, I want to talk to my mom. I don't, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. And so I, I, you know, I took, my mom took the phone and I said to her, I thought it was going to be, (laughs) I mean, in retrospect, this is so terrible, but like, I thought it was going to be my grandmother, my dad's mother. I was like, I thought he was telling me, I thought he was going to tell me that she died. Why didn't he tell me? Why isn't it that she died? Why did Brian die? And so that was my response to it, um, which is which was obviously that it was unfair. It was unjust. It was, you know, against nature. Um, So even though I had this like kind of exactly I had this kind of deep fear that it was going to happen when it did happen. I was like, absolutely not. This did not happen. And it was, you know, when people were kind of texting me as like the news got around and I was driving back to Long Island, like my friend was driving me back to Long Island and. I was getting these texts and everyone was like, I'm so sorry for your loss. And I like the way I felt was like, how, like, how is it real to every, it's more real to everyone else that this has happened than it is to me. And, and it was really, that was a feeling that I had, you know, um, never felt before, obviously where, where like other people were recognizing a reality that I couldn't fully internalize. Um, the the disbelief. Exactly. You know, so yeah. profound. You know, I, one of the things I wonder about, because I, I don't know, um, in, you know much about my history, but besides working in hospice for many years, I also helped run a World Trade Center program. And, um, you know, I, and in that group, there were many, many siblings who had lost their family members in the World Trade Tower. So I ran siblings groups that had as many as 40 people in them. So we talked a lot about the uniqueness of sibling right. loss. And I wonder what you've learned over these years um, about the aspects that it was a sibling rather than a, a parent or a child or a, you know, that kind of a thing, so, or a spouse. Right. Because a sibling loss is really considered kind of a disenfranchised loss. People yeah. don't really understand it. They figure you're okay and they're wondering how your parents are. Or they're wondering how the spouse is, you know. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, and I, I started reading about that, <laughs> like, almost immediately. Like, you know, after the funeral, I was like, you know, what, how how do other people deal with this? Because it is so weird and no one understands it. And, you know, any friend who tried to relate to me could only really relate to me by, you know, a parent losing a parent or like, and I do feel bad that I have a little bit of like, I get a little annoyed (laughs) when people are really upset about a grandparent loss or a parent loss. Cause it's like, you know, when that happens for me, it's going to be on top of this thing that wasn't supposed to happen, you know? And so it's like, that's the, and I think that's one of the most difficult aspects of it is that, uh, 
I mean, and I've written bef- about like how selfish it feels every, like all of my grief about my brother feels selfish, but also that the idea of like, when our parents die, he's not going to be there that, you know, of course, or of course. that's, that's a real stressor. And I don't think other people understand that, that like, cause I mean, even if you're an only child, I guess, you know, if you're an only child, you never knew any other way to be, or you never knew any other way to envision your future. And so for me, it's, it is, again, it is that loss of what I thought the future was going to be, where he was going to be there for all these things and he's not there. And also it's a weird type of loss because I feel like people are uncomfortable talking about it in a way that I, I I mean, people are uncomfortable talking about death all the time, I guess, but I think people feel more weird about it because it was untimely, because it was, you know, a death of despair, because it was my brother and they don't really understand what that would be like, or they don't even want to imagine what that would be like, which I can completely understand. And so um, I think there's a a reluctance to acknowledge it that that wouldn't happen with the deaths of of other other types of loss, you know, and um, yeah, and I, I with my for my parents, it's also, of course, very terrible and i mean being a person who's seen their own parent lose a child and yes, and you know double and, pain yeah. yes and that is that is another type of pain and that isn't you know and i've talked about it. i have a friend who also she lost her sister and we kind of find out found out in a weird in a weird way one day and um you know, we've talked about the feeling uh, that we have that we are not allowed to die or something, you know, that like nothing bad is allowed to happen more, to more us. Responsibility, the responsibility a, yes. shift, you know, the whole family dynamic shifted. And part of that yes. you're saying is that I feel more responsible for my parents now. Yes. Yes. You know, an extra burden has, has come on my shoulders. You yeah. know, um, this, uh, John Bradshaw, who is a famous psychologist, talked about the family like a mobile Mm-hmm. I thought it was such a great description. And he said that when you take off one piece of the mobile, everything is dysregulated. You know, it's just, it had found this balance. A family finds balance, relationships, and then it just changes everything. So how, what are some of the ways that your family did change? Well, my parents were already divorced for a little while, but my, I guess they spend more time together, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is weird um, yeah. for all for me and my sister, okay. of course. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah, because it's you know you were you were supposed to get used to this other dynamic, and now it, it's because they share a loss, they have this in common. Um, it's interesting to because you know my I have a very good friend who I grew up with who lost her brother in the same manner a year before my brother passed. We grew up on the same street, and we kind of got back in touch after my brother passed. Um, because she, you know, she was like, I'm sorry that you're in this club with me. Um, and, um, it's, yeah, people just, it, it's weird to, yeah, deal with that, that weird, that different dynamic, but, you know, as it's, it's very important to, I think, have other people who are also, uh, who know what that specific struggle is, of you know, course, to deal with. It's so unique. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And how, yeah. And how you deal with your, your, that parental relationship. Um, for me, you know, I have another much younger sibling, so trying to deal with that as well. And so for me, yeah, in my sibling, in losing my brother, I, it was a weird loss because it's a sibling loss and no one knows how to talk about it or deal with it, but it's also a difficult loss because, I feel like I'm responsible (laughs) for everybody. And so like, it's, I feel like I came last in terms of, I mean, I definitely, I mean, and again, to be like, it's not funny, but it's, you know, 
it because it's death but it also is funny you know like at his wake I was like definitely the most hysterical person there so like I got the, the there was that response to me at that time because I was the most hysterical but at the same time in the aftermath you know I'm not the most hysterical um and so and I'm not the one who has I guess, who feels that this is the most weight on their shoulders at all times. You know, I've, I've, because I have this spiritual connection to my brother and to other aspects of life. And because also I have a job that allows me to travel and be creative and, and, you know, everything else, I feel very lucky in that because I think that that helps me to grieve and to not feel overburdened by it. But I do feel that it's, it's difficult because I, I, in the relationships of the family, um, Yeah, because, you know, for my sister, this is always, I mean, for all of us is a defining moment, but my sister was 16 when it happened. So my sister has been through such a different kind of grief than I have. And some, it's a grief that I can't understand. And so trying to understand that and the, and the tension of not being able to really is, is a really difficult thing. I think, um, I, I, I definitely can talk to my parents more easily about it than I can talk uh, about to it with my sister because we went through something very, very different. Yeah. Yeah. And you wrote in, in one of your essays, um, I'm going to paraphrase, but basically how, you know, when one person dies, everyone's losing a different, everyone's loss is so different of that person. And I think, you know, you just explained it so well, but it, it really is true because, you know, the, the parents are losing this completely different person than the sibling is, than the friend is, than, the the lover is than the partner is you know what I mean and how do you feel like who was your brother to you and in, in uh in opposition to how he was to maybe your parents like what what did he specifically mean to you and I asked this also out of I grew up as an only child for most of my life I found out I had a long lost brother after my dad passed away <laughs> very weird um but you know in not knowing really what a sibling relationship is like like how do you feel like your relationship with him was different than you know who was he to you that he wasn't maybe to your parents Well I obviously he was uh, more of a friend to me than he was to my parents and he was more of a you know uh, a foil and a competitor as I was talking about, but he was, yeah, he was, he was just a friend to me in a way that he wasn't to them. And I, and I think in a different way than he was a friend to our sister, because she's so much younger, obviously, like we've, we've both had a much more protective type of relationship toward her. Um, and so, yeah, for me, it, yeah, it was just losing a friend who knew like everything. <laughs> yes, keep, um, the keeper of your history. Exactly. I mean, you, the person you're, and you're keepers of a similar history together because you grew yeah, up in a similar and, time frame. Yeah. And, and my, you know, my, when my sister was little, my parents got divorced. So, and, but when they got divorced, my brother and I were both basically adults. And so we had a totally different experience of that. And so you know, just, yeah, people who grew up in the, in the same way and could tell the same stories and found the same stupid movies funny and, and had the same inside jokes and and that sort of thing. And, you know, could make fun of me in, in a way that no one else could because he was my little brother and it was so annoying. Um, and so, yeah, just losing that is, is a big, big loss. And, um, I'm lucky in that I have cousins, that were also around a similar age. So we all grew up together rather close. And so I don't, I had, I didn't lose like the entire history. I just lost maybe the most significant part of it, yeah. but yeah. It, 
It's huge. I mean, I'm also kind of reminded of David Sedaris said one time in an interview, um, because he's part of a big family, obviously, and he was talking about his kind of uh, pity for only children and that in a family with with siblings, um, that you have a sense of autonomy and a capacity to kind of maybe hide from your parents a little bit or your problems or your issues or you're, you're just not the central focus of everything. You know, I wonder, like, I'm. it sounds like from what you're expressing, like, that that must have shifted in a way. It's obviously, the dynamic of that must have shifted um, with with the loss of your brother. And it's something that, like, I don't know, did you feel a capacity to kind of to be a little bit more autonomous in a family with siblings growing up? I, I don't know, because it was the two of us for a while, and mm-hmm. we were not that close in age. So like we were five years apart. So like we had very separate distinctive happenings going on when we were kids. And so, but, and also I was the oldest. So like when you're the oldest, I think you just, you're just a very different type of person. Like I, you know, I had to be the most like studious and the most, you know, perfect one because um, you know, all this attention was focused on me and like, I was never allowed to get away with anything and that sort of like very typical oldest child stuff. Um, and I also was the oldest child in my like extended family. So like I was born into like a ton of attention in a way that like no one else was. Um, and yeah, and I think that also, I guess, goes along with other things about how I am able to like, kind of process things and always feel a little bit supported and grounded is that like, you know, I, as a kid was just like overwhelmed with attention. Um, And I (laughs) guess that's why I'm a writer and like desperately asking for attention all the time. I can relate to that for sure. But it's when you bring up David Sedaris, I actually think of him writing, I think, and then we were five, I think it was, or it's, and then we were four because he right, wrote a yes. really, really amazing essay on losing one of his sisters. And I think in his book Calypso, which I think was his last, second to last book, he gets a little bit darker and more detailed about that loss. And I, I, th- I felt very, very, very recognized in how he experienced it. And and the same thing about how you explain how you explain how many siblings you have now to like a, a in a small talk conversation with someone you never are probably going to meet again or maybe they'll just follow you on social media or something and it's like how what am I supposed to say to this person and so I always kind of take when someone's like oh do you have siblings and like I take a deep breath and in that breath I decide am I going to know this person for a long time or am I not you know and right, because that's something I talk about in, in bereavement counseling a lot you know um, you mentioned something that I thought was interesting, and you brought it up before about feeling selfish in grief. Mm, yes, and I, I think that I was like, a very important aspect. Too. So, tell us more what you meant by that. You wrote about it in one of your articles. Yeah, I think because I, uh, I, I feel it feels difficult to mourn more what I thought I was going to have than to mourn what my brother could have had. And I think I hope that maybe I am. I don't know, more understanding it more, but I feel there. And I mean, obviously these are like the phases of, of grief, you know, but I think I'm still in a phase where I'm just very, very angry about this loss and very angry, even though I have so much love for him. And even though I feel him everywhere and I feel his presence and I feel that he is trying to be a calming presence, I still feel a lot of anger toward losing him and, and how that is going to affect the rest of my life. Um, and how, you know, it's just never going to go away. You know, it's, it's not even just like the biggest things, like if my wedding or 
or my sister's wedding or like even if I had a kid or something that he wouldn't be there. Um, it's also just like every holiday, you know, every Christmas. And I mean, everyone says this. This, And I mean, it's, these it's are so the spe- permanent. These are the specificities yes. of of how loss affects pretty much everyone is just, yeah, it's the, the permanence and realizing the permanence every year when these things happen, you know, when it's his birthday, when it's the day he died, when it is Christmas or, you know, uh, that's really, really, really the toughest thing for me. And I think that's why I still have so much anger about it instead of, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to mourn what could couldn't happen so what I, you know or like mm, what yeah, you can yeah. envision and so what I mourn is what I thought I was going to have you know the things that existed in of my course. brain and absolutely so, <laughs> so could I make a suggestion Alicia that yes you know we grieve all these things at the same time there's nothing that's yeah. there is nothing wrong in any feeling that we have our feelings are innocent they really are and we can have so many conflicting feelings like being angry at somebody and missing them and fearing that you know so many feelings all at the same time so when i think of selfish and grief it is selfish but it's self-full yes it means that we need to really embody ourselves in the grief process and and give room for all the feelings that we have and none of them are wrong and not to feel guilty about any of them totally and i think one of the things about the stages of grief then i i know people have made this um argument before and it's you know it's that like somehow you move past one stage and onto the other stage, right? right? And that you're then done with this stage. That stage <laughs> is over. Now I'm ready to go on to this next. I've passed this level. Like they, yeah, they exist. Like they overlap. You will go yeah. back to the first stage and of then course. go to the last stage. And then surprise, you're going to find a whole nother stage that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, <laughs> she was the one who invented the stages of grief right well that yeah they were originally for illness but right and then right but that you know that she never thought of i think it's just so much more of a complex and nuanced kind of experience than we are made aware of and that also (laughs) i just want to mention that i think somewhere along the line that like um selfishness got attached to always you know it has a negative connotation Mm -hmm. and i think that there's an importance in looking inward and, and, and looking towards yourself, especially in this kind of grieving process, which is that if you don't, if you don't look at how this has affected your life, if you don't have quote unquote selfish feelings about this, then like who will feel that for you? You know (laughs) what I mean? Like no one else is going to feel that for you. And that's important. Right. And it's important, I think too, and just like recognizing that people impact our lives and that we are codependent in ways. And I would prefer to say like interdependent because I think codependent also has a negative connotation, but like interdependent with people. And that is what makes relationships valuable. And that's what makes life good. Right. So like, if you didn't have this bond with your brother and and folks who are listening who have experienced grief and maybe feel the same way, like if we hadn't formed these relationships that make us feel this way when they're, you know, if you can't picture your life without them, then you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. what is life about in a way? You know, I wanted to say, Alicia, you um, made a reference to um, the ocean is where grief resides. I thought that was so beautiful. And you said, and it's where we feel comfortable because, you know, grief is often described like those, waves you're out there on the wild ocean you know and the waves are just coming at you and how do you sustain it how do you bear it so i loved your metaphor the ocean is where grief resides because that's why it's not linear if you look at the ocean there's no beginning and no end it's 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 true it just keeps going and so i want to talk a little bit about uh an essay you wrote called my first oyster 
And so right. you are Which famous- is actually, it's, it's named improperly because it wasn't my first oyster. Right. <laughs> it was my first oyster after years of veganism, yes. Right, and you write extensively um, uh, as a food writer about veganism and uh, in a very interesting and beautiful way. And that's a whole nother podcast conversation, one of which I'm sure you're discussing on lots of podcasts. But um, but yeah, can you just tell us a little bit about this? Because this is a beautiful essay and talking about um, eating oysters after being a vegan for a long time. And can you just kind of explain to our listeners a little bit like how you came to that and like why why that happened and how it played into your grieving process? Yeah, so I, it wasn't an intentional act. I didn't you know, think a lot about eating oysters um, after my brother died. It was that the first time I went out by myself after my brother passed was to the release of a cocktail book, which interestingly enough was a cocktail book that the widow of one of the most important kind of men in the craft cocktail scene um, had put out. Um, he had passed away suddenly a, a few years ago, and that was she finished the book for him. And I, I went to the party. It was at an oyster bar. I got a cocktail. I sat down. I was I was feeling very feral, I suppose is the word <laughs> of like just like I don't know how to be a person right now in the world after this experience. Um, but trying to get back to my regular life. And so they were shucking oysters and I was like, you know what? I wanted an oyster. (laughs) Like that was it. It was just a very like, I want this. And so I'm going to have it. And then, and then the, the thinking about it came later, I guess, which like I walked out of the restaurant. I was like, "Uh, am I a vegan anymore? And the whole thing is really funny actually, because, (laughs) because oysters like don't have a nervous system. There are lots of people who consider oysters vegan, but in the grand context of veganism, oysters are not vegan. And so, um, I mean, I think if you understand that, I guess that's like kind of a point of humor in that essay is that this isn't even like a big violation of like the vegan code of ethics. Um, and so, um, but I kept right. eating them right. and I kept making, doing it in secret for the most part. And like, it was a really, I don't know why I, I made it secret, but even now I won't post on my Instagram. <laughs> like if I eat an egg, I won't post, post it on Instagram. But, um, and it was just about kind of letting letting myself just do whatever I wanted for a little while, which um, I think maybe that's an oldest child thing. I have a lot of trouble with putting what I want before, you know, every other concern of, of existence. And so um, it was just about kind of, yeah, letting myself just actually eat intuitively, maybe eat in the practice what I preached in a way in terms of eating. Like I, I just kind of was allowed to, I allowed myself to do that. Um, and also, you know, of course, being from Long Island, being from the South shore, like oysters did represent, you know, uh, things that my family would do when we were kids, we would, you know, go out, eat oysters and clams. You know, my brother never did. He hated seafood. Like when he was a little baby, like they'd have to take him out of what it's called Popeye's. Like he would be crying because of the smell of seafood. He hated it. And so like, for, for me, it's like another, like, it's a (laughs) lot, like it's kind of an act also of rage. And I write about like it being an act of rage against God, but it's also kind of an act of rage against my brother where I'm going to associate him with something he hated as like this last bit of like sibling, um, you know, just ribbing kind of yeah. thing, you know, like just, right. yeah. And rage is passion and rage is love. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, the rage against him by eating oysters is your love, <laughs> you know, your love. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. 
And not eating chicken wings was <laughs> to never give him that. That was also right. my, it's like, I'll eat these, but I won't eat that. that I you still actually hate like. them, right. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was really, it was beautiful. You said in your essay, I wanted to eat something that had been alive. I wanted to take something from God, which yeah. was just really like so poignant and striking and, and beautiful. Um yeah, I mean, and then you went on to say that a friend tweeted, sometimes I eat fast food fish sandwich just to remember my grandmother. And then I realize I'm trying to remember myself before all of this. Yes, um, yes. And I think that was something that really stuck out to me because, you know, we mark our lives, I think, with food as trail markers. We need something to stick down as opposed to realize where we've been. You know what I mean? And maybe not everyone uses food. Some people uses, use writing or whatever. But food is universal in which is everybody eats it, whether they enjoy it or they kind of do it for just function. Everybody does eat it. And so um, I think that it's just interesting to think about the posts and when somebody dies you try to find a way back to like who you were and again talking about selfishness that's good is reinvestigating who were you then with this person in your life who are you now and how do I kind of map my steps back oh like I dropped some crumbs like literally back (laughs) right right and some of those crumbs they lead to all different things like just talking about you know your brother loving chicken wings that's a crumb and you can remember how you probably felt I'm sure when he was eating chicken wings and how you won't and how he didn't like the smell of of seafood and the things I'm sure you enjoyed together, which, you know, you had mentioned eating Elio's pizza together and things like that. And then I, I kind of went from there, my thought process to like, you know, we are such a food centric kind of culture, especially on social media and stuff and food obsessed and thinking about the best new place to get that and the best new place to get that. And then you just think about like, well, isn't Elio's pizza kind of the best thing? And not because it tastes, <laughs> tastes the best or anything, just because it's like, like, and you know, I mean, the proverbial Elias pizza. Right, right. Um, it's just, I've thought a lot about personally, and I don't know your feelings about this, but just as like, you know, we've, a lot of us have eaten, especially of us in the restaurant business or in the food business or food writing community, like eaten a lot of delicious food and eaten great things and gone to beautiful places. And like, sometimes it's just that thing that reminds you, right, of like, oh, Elio's pizza in the back of the car when we're like on vacation. It's so important. And it is such a talisman and such like a, a trail marker for, you know, just times in our lives and who we've been at, at certain points. Like a treasure were, map. You know, it's a yeah. treasure map. And the mm-hmm. treasures are those moments that we had certain foods and they, they didn't have to be fancy, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. A map of our life. Yeah. Yeah. A real food map. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So how do you, are there any ways... Um, in which you kind of continue to make that map when it comes to food and thinking about your brother now, are there things that you, you know, maybe still eat or think about that are like really tying you to his memory and to the memory of who you were in, in regards to him? I mean, I think that just letting the lesson that I needed to loosen up, um, around veganism is one that I took from his passing and one that I continue to, to you know, uh, acknowledge and, and live, um, out, you know, um, I, I just don't think that it's worth passing up, um, sharing a meal with someone 
just to not, you know, eat cheese or something like that. Though I do, I do eat very minimal cheese. It makes me sick. So, um, but but at the same time, you know, and uh, it's about, it it brought me back to thinking more holistically about food and not just about wanting to do everything right all the time. And to thinking about what a food, like you were saying, what a food represents to me in my own history, what a food represents for me in, you know, starting a friendship or a relationship with someone, what a food represents in terms of, um, you know, when I go back to Long Island and hang out with my family, it's like, you know, it's about, um, I've just loosened up on that. And I don't want to um, make what I eat a point of separation from other people anymore or ever again. I mean, I still don't eat um, meat. I still don't eat whole fish um, for the most, I did in France once and it didn't end well. But I, um, so I, I just, you know, try, I try to be more, um, yeah, just, just more human focused in, in my relationship to food rather than just focused on being the most perfect vegan, um, whoever walked the earth. So, um, (laughs) yeah, I think that's important. I think, I think letting like easing up on yourself can be a really important lesson in general, but from, especially from grief, you know, it's like then when we experience grief, we're like, well, I should be doing it this way. Or I, you know, there's all this like, I love that self condemnation, but giving yourself a break is a great lesson, no matter well, who, you are who you are. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. easing up on yourself, self-compassion. So Alicia, we ask everyone the same question when we finish the show. Um, and that is if you could, if you had a message for your younger self, kind of at the beginning of this this grief journey, uh, knowing what you know now and kind of having lived life how how you have since then, um, is there any kind of message or that you would have given your through your younger self at the beginning of this process? Advice? Uh, you know what? I don't think so. I think I like I don't like that it happened, obviously, but I appreciate the way that I've moved through it um you know there's certainly things about my life that I would change um you know decisions I would have made sooner um about my life uh that I didn't probably because I was in this very foggy state where I I couldn't tell you know my ass from my elbow (laughs) but um I I you know and and there's things that I have a bit of where I try to have self-compassion you know where I try to say you know you didn't you didn't know how things were going to go. And, you know, you, you, you couldn't have made these decisions at that time. You were too upset. Um, but at the same time, I understand how how that happened and how I allowed myself things to happen and, and et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, you know, I there's things I want to change from before my brother died, but there's nothing I want to change from after I you know, I um I have just, you know, done my best the whole time. And, um, and it's, it's, you know, it, it's the same thing I say about the pandemic where it's like anything good that happened in the last like eight months is you feel shitty about, you know, like in your life, you know, but at the same time, it's like, this has been a learning experience. And, um, because I, I, I am able to have learned from it. I, I am okay with how I have acted in in the aftermath. (laughs) Okay. For sure. I want to applaud that. I really like that. <laughs> that was beautiful. Um, well, I just want to, I mean, on behalf of both of us, just thank you so much because it's 
a lot. It's a big ask to come yeah. and talk to two strangers about <laughs> um, such an incredibly painful and traumatic experience with such, you know, poise and grace and um, such openness and vulnerability. So it is. We deeply, deeply, deeply appreciate that, and we're humbled by it, and and just thankful um, for your openness. It, it means a great deal, and I think. You know, the goal of the show is to be able to, for folks listening, to understand that, like, there's a community around grief. Um, it can feel so, like, lonely and people can feel, I think, so misunderstood and confused in their own grieving process. So to hear just other people's stories is so valuable. But really, thank you so much for going in such depth about your loss. It was, it's a, it, again, it's a big ask and we really, really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. It's it's good to discuss it with people who understand and want to hear about it. And, you know, it's it like I said before, it can be so hard to find people who really understand. And as you were saying, and so, yeah, it's it's good to talk about it always Yeah, in honor of Brian. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. And we just are sending good vibes down to you in Puerto Rico and imagining all the amazing, delicious, tropical <laughs> things you must be making. The cake you were talking right. about in the beginning, I started completely just salivating over. We don't get very good tropical fruits up here. so No. <laughs> yeah. So sending good vibes your way. And thank you so much for joining us. This was like really wonderful. And it was great to get to know you um, and over the over the Internet. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for having me again. Yeah, thank you, Alicia. Have a beautiful Alicia. day. Thank you so much, Alicia. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. The Hearst family has raised cattle on California's central coast since 1865. Today, Hearst Ranch's signature product is their 100% grass-fed, completely hormone and antibiotic-free beef. The Hearst Ranches have always treated their animals with great care. Their cattle live a completely natural existence as foragers and grazers. Well-managed grazing fertilizes the land naturally, sustains a seasonal rhythm to the ranches, and produces a remarkable meat whose flavor is the authentic taste of the American West. Hearst Ranch beef is available seasonally, May through August, in select whole food markets throughout California and all year round at their retail locations in San Simeon and Paso Robles. And now, HRN listeners in Arizona, Nevada, and California can get Hearst Ranch beef delivered right to their door through Larder Meat Company. Go to lardermeatco.com and shop the 100% grass-fed box to stock your freezer with Hearst Ranch beef. That's L-A-R-D-E-R, meatco.com. Learn more about the storied history, farming practices, and conservation efforts of Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that Processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you.
For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.